Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about three court cases that demonstrate even though the Supreme Court tends to rule in favor of religious liberty, it is still under fire. We'll also talk about three Supreme Court cases that could rein in the judicial power of government agencies and how questions about then-Vice President Biden's alleged pseudonyms are heating up. All this and more on today's edition of Truth and Politics and Culture. This is Dr. Tony Bean. It's time to crank it up. All right, welcome in, everybody. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of Truth and Politics and Culture. For those of you that are joining us live, uh, we are on YouTube and Facebook. At least I hope we're on YouTube. I understand there was some issue with that yesterday. I have my uh, tech guy looking into that, and I didn't get to hear back from him yesterday, so I'm, I'm assuming we're up on YouTube this morning as well as Facebook. But uh, if not, we'll get it worked out and figure out, unless YouTube's decided to suspend me again, uh, they suspended me, um, what, about a month ago for a couple of weeks. And uh, so now um, I, I haven't been notified that that's happened, but uh, that doesn't mean that it hasn't. So we're looking into it, and we'll find out, let you know what's going on. But uh, anyway, if you're, if you're joining us live this morning, good morning. And if you are listening to the podcast, whenever you're doing that, thank you very much for following the program. And if you would, leave me a good review if you like the show. Uh, that helps us to be able to get others to investigate if they like this kind of talk, this kind of a mix between uh, theology and politics. And uh, I actually think we need more of this. I, I think bringing the truth into political discussions is extremely important. As we head in, particularly into 2024, that's going to be um, extremely contentious. We've had contentious elections in this country before. I mean, we've had. Um, you know, in the early days of the republic, we we've had uh, very contentious elections. I, I, you know, I think about um, when when you had um, well, uh, they're leaving me at the moment. Andrew Jackson, for example. Um, uh, you had John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, very, I mean, it was uh, you know, you had newspapers in the early part of our country's history. You had newspapers that were dedicated. I mean, it was there was no question that you had a you would have a newspaper that would favor one candidate over another. So if you wanted to know the good news about one candidate, you'd read one paper. If you wanted to know the good news about another candidate, you'd read another paper. Uh, that's kind of the way it is today. We went through this period in the 20th century, eight to, uh, 19th century, 20th century, where journalism had this idea that it's actually um, unbiased and, and just simply reports the facts, just the facts, ma'am, um, an old dragnet reference, uh, you know, just, just talking about whatever the news is about. And, of course, we know that that's not the case today, that there are news outlets that pretty much defend uh, anything that progressives do, and there are news outlets that defend anything that conservatives do. So we're almost we're we're kind of leaning back into that era of uh, an earlier time in our country when it was much more obvious 
that the news media was supporting one candidate or another or one political party or another or one particularly philo- particular philosophy or another. But going into 2024, I, I just think that applying, looking at a lot of sources, looking for the truth, applying what's really happening without a lot of hyperbole and a lot of exaggeration, a lot of um, you know changing of the narrative, I think it's going to become very important to keep violence tamped down in this country that we try to be completely honest in what we get to the truth about the stories that we're seeing before we knee-jerk react. And there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction going on. Um, I'm hopeful that, and, and it's, it's my goal doing this radio program. Well, it's not radio anymore. It's internet program. <laughs> Sorry. 22 years of being on the radio. It's hard to to break an old habit like that. But this particular internet program and podcast, we're, I'm, I'm trying to read from a, a wide variety of sources and to also uh, talk to people who are in the know about these things to get to the truth and then apply biblical truth to what we're discovering. Okay, once we find out what's really true in the news, then how are Christians supposed to, supposed to respond to that? Because we have a responsibility in the culture to be, first of all, peacemakers. And a lot of people don't like that. They don't like the idea that, um, you know, you, the other side is they, they compare it to uh, us being weak when the other side is constantly breaking the rules. If we play by the rules, then we're at a disadvantage. Well, my argument is that Christians don't have that option, that we can't just decide all of a sudden that it would be more beneficial for us to disregard scriptural standards about how we enter into the marketplace, because when we do that, we're disobeying God, and we're also saying to God, look, we can't, we can't win our argument, we can't defend you in the marketplace unless we walk away from the biblical principles that you caused, called us to. And that's ultimately saying that God's power is not enough. I mean, that we, we've got to have something more. We've got to step outside of that if we're going to make our arguments compelling. And, and I believe the most compelling arguments that we can make are rooted and grounded in Scripture and that they have the power of God behind them because of that. All right, quick uh, programming notes. We will not have a show on Friday this week or on Monday of next week. Uh, it's Labor Day weekend. North Greenville University is playing Charleston Southern, and uh, that's down in Charleston. We're praying that uh, this hurricane that's about to hit Florida, um, that it's going to dissipate over land before it brings terrible adverse effects to South Carolina and to Georgia. Uh, obviously, as it, as it moves across land, it's going to lose some of its force, and so we need to be praying, first of all, for the people of Florida, because they are in the crosshairs of what looks like it's going to be a Category 4 hurricane, maybe 130-mile-an-hour winds gusting up to 160 miles an hour when it hits the coast of Florida. It comes in through the Gulf Coast. And so um, please remember those folks, that they're, they're evacuating a lot of the areas down there, uh, there are predictions that this could be more devastating than uh, Ian, the, the last hurricane that went through and caused a lot of devastation in Florida. 
Um, Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended his campaign um, for ever how long it takes. He said he was asked about that by a reporter. How long are you going to be off the campaign trail for president? And he said, well, as long as it takes to make sure that Florida emergency services are operating correctly and that we're reaching the most people, most people as possible. And, of course, that's his job as the governor. Uh, to me, it speaks a lot of his character that he's willing to do that, um, that he's willing to sacrifice his political goals for the uh, personal responsibility that he has as the governor of the state of Florida. And I, I wouldn't expect anything less, but in a, in a country and in a culture where people's personal ambitions sometimes and actually often override what's best or what their personal responsibilities are, it's just good to see Governor DeSantis doing his job down in Florida. We need to pray for those folks because there's much devastation that can come from this storm, and we pray that um, that devastation is not going to spread um, from Florida to Georgia to South Carolina. Uh, it looks like right now the way the storm is tracking that it's going to move very quickly once it gets over land, which is good. I mean, it, uh, some of the worst damage by these storms is not caused by wind but by flooding because if a storm just sits and spins over a particular area, it churns out water that is, it, the, it, I mean, it causes floods on uh, an epic level, and that can be much more problematic than, than the high winds. So if the storm moves fast, hopefully, that means there won't be the massive flooding that often accompanies these storms. Um, it's supposed to be, once it hits Florida, uh, by Thursday, today, by Thursday morning early, it's going to be moving through the Char Charleston area. I think the chart that I looked at had it moving about 2 a.m. through Charleston. And then by 2 p.m. in the afternoon on Thursday, it's going to be moving off the South Carolina coast toward North Carolina and then kind of veering out to sea from there. So, again, just uh, we, we can't emphasize this enough. Please be in prayer for the people who are in the path of this storm. First of all, and most of all, the people in Florida and then those in Georgia and South Carolina and potentially some in North Carolina that could be affected by the storm. All right, I said we we're going to talk today about religious liberty. You know, we're really in the United States right now in the best place that we've been in a long time when it comes to religious liberty in terms of how the Supreme Court is responding to a number of religious liberty cases that has come before it. And, of course, you know um, about Creative um, 303, uh, the, the decision that upheld the right of a website designer to not go against her deeply held religious beliefs to design a website that would violate those beliefs. Um, we know about uh, Coach Kennedy who the Supreme Court upheld his right to pray in the middle of, the, of a football field after the game, that that wasn't considered promoting government-sponsored religion, that that was his private religious expression. And so the court upheld him uh, in that decision. Uh, and there's been multiple other cases. We, we could talk about Jack Phillips. Of course, Jack Phillips is still in court. Uh, he won his case when it came to not making uh, or creating a cake for a homosexual wedding. But now he's back in court, and the Colorado courts are ruling against him again over whether he will make a transgender cake, something to celebrate a person 
who is transitioning. So, um, we, we, but, but so far, as these cases, have, when they're in the lower courts, the lower courts are tending to rule against religious liberty. But when these cases get to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is ruling in favor. And here's another example of that. Um, this is World Magazine today. The authors are Sharon Deerberger and Elizabeth Russell. Um, this is talking about parents who are Christians that are in the foster care system, the adoption system they're trying to adopt or take children into their home to try to ease the pressure that's on the foster care system, particularly in Massachusetts and a couple of other states. Um, and the, the states are working against them. The states are trying to prevent Christians from adopting or from becoming foster parents because they refuse to, uh, to encourage LGBTQ behavior if they place a child that maybe expresses that behavior. So, so here's the thing. These Christian parents are not saying, we don't want LGBTQ children. That's, that's not the issue. They're not sitting across from a foster care uh, placement agency or an adoption agency representative and saying, oh, no, 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 don't give us any children that have these tendencies or these characteristics. No, they're, they're being told that if they place, if a child is placed in their care and the child indicates that they want to be called by a particular pronoun or that doesn't match their biological gender or if they want to be driven to appointments uh, for gender transition care, that these parents, these foster parents, would agree to do that. And these parents are saying, these Christian parents are saying, no, we can't do that because of our deeply held religious beliefs. We'll be glad to take care of the children. We'll be glad to provide for them. We're not going to say we don't want children that have these proclivities, but we cannot encourage and foster them while they are living with us because it violates our deeply held religious beliefs. And so this is going to wind up in the Supreme Court. Um, in Massachusetts, the, the, the foster care program is, is a disaster. And it's a disaster because of the number of children that are in the foster care system. Now, this is not just, this is not uh, rare at, at, or, or just centered in Massachusetts, I, sh I should say. There are plenty of states that the foster care program is overrun and there's not enough parents or not enough couples who are saying, yes, we'll take children into our home. But in Massachusetts, for example, the foster care crisis is so bad that according to the story in World Magazine, one 15-year-old child, James, spent 40 days last fall living in the windowless emergency department room in a Leonminster, Massachusetts hospital. He wore paper scrubs and could only leave to use the bathroom or shower down the hall. 40 days in that particular situation because there wasn't room in a foster care facility or there, there wasn't a foster family that would take him in. Dozens of children in the state's foster care program are waiting for a family to um, or, or have sheltered. That is, if they're in the program and they're waiting for a family, they're sheltered right now at the hospital. And that's according to the Boston Globe that was released in a report that was released earlier this year. Others wind up sleeping on couches and beanbag chairs and offices of the state's Department of Children and Families because of foster and group home shortages. 
Experts say that such experiences can deeply traumatize an already traumatized child. And yet, with more than 1,500 in the state of Massachusetts waiting for foster care homes, the state's uh, DCF agency recently denied Mike and Kitty Burke from becoming foster care parents because of their Christian beliefs about marriage, sexuality, and gender. Now, I have to go back to August 8th. If we back up to earlier this month, the Burks filed a lawsuit against Massachusetts to prevent such discrimination. The suit argues that their First Amendment rights to free exercise of religion have been violated. Well, there's no question that their rights have been violated. I mean, they in every way that you can describe, their home has qualified. They've been through the process where they've been vetted and qualified to be a foster care home. And that process is pretty tough in every state. I mean, you, you have to have an in-home inspections. You have to go through multiple interviews. You have to have background checks. I mean, your life has to pretty much be laid out in front of the entire world. And, and really, it has to be if you're talking about allowing children to be placed into your home to be cared for um, until hopefully they can, uh, they can be adopted or uh, there's a foster home that's available. Foster home shelters are, are absolutely overcrowded in most states, and that's why they're looking for more and more foster, foster care families. And by the way, let me just say that as the church, as the body of Christ, this is a place where Christians can lean in. And it's a place where Christians are trying to lean in because they realize that taking care of children is a, was a priority of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was very clear, suffer the little children to come unto me. That is, allow them to come, under me and, uh, come unto me and forbid them not. Why? Because such is the kingdom of heaven. That is, the attitude of a little child is very open to the things of God, the wonder of children at the, the things of God, the, the faith of children, the way that they, they place their faith in their, their parents, uh, they're very trusting. And, and the Bible says that as Christians, we have a responsibility to take care of widows and orphans, we, and, and we have a responsibility to have the same attitude toward children in our culture that Jesus had. And one of the best ways we can do this is either to take children in as, as a foster home or to adopt. But we can't do that if the state looks at us and says, you've got to change your religious beliefs, your deeply held beliefs in what the Scripture teaches in order to be eligible to do this. According to legal experts that were interviewed by World Magazine, at least four states, including Massachusetts, have tried in recent years to deny parents foster licensing over Christian beliefs on sexuality. That's what it, it's always coming down to that. I mean, it's the LGBTQ plus narrative that keeps these parents from being able to adopt or be foster parents, part of what appears to be a troubling trend. They say such denials are meant to have a chilling effect. Massachusetts bureaucrats wanted more than just to make sure the Burks weren't foster parents, says Tom Jipping, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. They wanted to send a message that anyone with those views about sexuality was not welcome. Now, can you think about that with me for a minute? 1,500 children, children being kept in hospitals um, and, and, because, and in, in foster care offices because they're not enough 
spaces for these children to, to go into a foster home or with a family, and we're quibbling where the, the state is willing to try to intimidate Christian parents into not putting their name out there to receive these children uh, when, when there's such a need. And it's over the question of sexuality, whether these parents are going to be willing to support sexual choices by children, minors. Um, it, it, it boggles the mind when you think about it. Uh, the Burks, a Roman Catholic couple of Southampton, Massachusetts, couldn't wait to welcome a foster child with the hope of adopting. After years of infertility treatments and heartbreak, they had successfully completed, listen, to, and you, I talked about this training, the scrutiny that you have to go through to be a foster parent, 30 hours of training, extensive interviews, and rigorous assessments by the DCF. Now, that's the Department of Foster Services in Massachusetts. The department acknowledged their strengths. In other words, they came back and said, wow, this couple is willing to parent a child, even siblings with special needs of any race, ethnicity, or culture. Yeah, that would also be the Christian worldview. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. That We, we believe that all are image bearers of God in creation. And so this couple is, they're, they're demonstrating that by saying, we'll take any child. Um, We're not going to support behavior that we believe is immoral when it comes to sexuality, but we're certainly willing to receive any child, even if they have those proclivities. But we're we're not going to support them because it goes against our religious beliefs. But any nationality, any race, we'll take siblings, these foster parent the the foster study gave a single re- reason for reject, rejecting the Burks according to the lawsuit they would quote not be affirming to a child who identified as LGBTQIA uh, their faith is not supportive and neither are they so yes there's there's this idea of biblical Christianity that has a lot to say about sexuality uh, that that. Sex is actually a gift of God. It is a it, it's what God has given to us for companionship, for pleasure within the context of marriage, and particularly for um, to be fruitful and to fulfill to fill the earth. Um, that, I mean, when when we take sex biblically and we apply it to the way that God says it's supposed to be applied, it's a beautiful thing. Um, it's it's part of the intimacy that takes place between a hun- husband and wife as they become one flesh, something to be celebrated within the context of marriage. But of course, the culture in the 60s, particularly the sexual revolution of the 60s, has taken the idea of sexuality, made it autonomous, and taken it out of the context of marriage and basically said, okay, whatever you want sex to be, you can define that and it's okay even to the point now that there are voices in our culture that are calling for the, um, the I don't want to use the word authorization, uh, the approval, I should say, of sex between adults and children. There are those who are, and, and, and that was going to be the next thing. I mean, once we got through same-sex relationships and then we got into the transgender movement, then the next thing, the next barrier that was going to be pushed and tested would be sexual relations between adults and children. 
And, and that's being questioned. Now, it's not hasn't gained widespread acceptance. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying if, if there are voices calling for that in our culture. And so the sexual revolution continues to move forward and be centered around personal autonomy, a person's choices when it comes to sexuality, as, a, as opposed to a biblical understanding of what the role of sexuality is in our culture and in our world. Um, Mark Renzi is president and CEO of Beckett, the law firm representing the Burks. He says, excluding people like the Burks because of their beliefs is discriminatory and illegal. Quote, they're admitting precisely why they're keeping people out, because they have religious beliefs about sex and marriage that the government doesn't agree with, and that's just not going to fly. Well, if you look at the way the Supreme Court has been ruling lately, um, I think he's right. I, I think that's not going to fly. I don't think that the Supreme Court would uphold a decision by Massachusetts, Massachusetts to exclude couples because of their religious beliefs, particularly when you look at the need. You talk about a compelling need by the state to place these children, to find a place to get them out of a situation that's very bad for them and into these foster homes where they can flourish. Um, and, and for the state to say, we're not going to do that because we got a Christian couple here who actually believes a biblical understanding of sexuality, I, I think when this gets to the Supreme Court, this will be overturned. Last year, the third U.S. District Court of Appeals upheld the rights of a New Jersey couple to foster children without hiding their Christian beliefs on marriage and sexuality. The state's welfare agency had removed their foster child and suspended their license after saying their religious beliefs were a problem. So this didn't even have to go to the, all the way to the Supreme Court from New Jersey, at least if, if they allow that decision to stand. The Third Circuit weighed in and said this can't happen. In Oregon... Jessica Bates sued state officials in April for rejecting her foster application because of her traditional Christian beliefs on sexuality and gender. Bates, a widowed mother of five, wants to foster and eventually adopt a pair of siblings. Sibling pairs are typically less likely to find foster homes, and Oregon's foster system is, you want to say it with me, overflowing, overtaxed, whatever, you want to, whatever term you want to use, there's a, there are a lot more children than they have places to put them. During an August 16th hearing, Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys asked the U.S. District Court to allow Bates to move forward with a foster placement while her case proceeds. So there, there's a little bit more here. The, and, and again, this is all coming from World Magazine, uh, Sharon uh, Deerberger and Elizabeth Russell. They've done very good investigative work on this. But, but this is a place where the state courts are finding reasons to exclude Christians. They, and, and the reason is because of their faith. I mean, when the state of Massachusetts can say in a document, they, they've, they've admitted this. This is not something they're, they're not trying to hide the ball here. They're not trying to put this under the table. They've come out and said, this family, this Catholic couple is a model for foster care placement except that they happen to believe the Bible when it comes to sexuality, and so that disqualifies them. You, you can imagine what, or I mean, I think I can imagine what would happen when the Supreme Court gets a hold of that, considering the way that they've been ruling when it comes to religious liberty. But I'm going to tell you, when we hear news, this is a thing that Christians need to be very uh, conscious of. 
Because I think we hear news that the Supreme Court rules in a particular way that, you know, that backs up biblical faith and defends our ability as Christians to live in the marketplace, not to just simply live our faith out in church, but to take it out into the world and live our values. When we hear about those decisions, we tend to go, oh, okay, that's all, that's all we got to do about that. Um, no, we have to be vigilant. We have to be constantly willing to take stands like the Burks. I mean, this is not easy. You know, this is this puts you in the national news. This causes people to protest at your home. This causes threats to come to you via um, social media. I mean, because you're standing up for what you believe and know to be right and true, and you're paying a price for it and having to fight in court to do something that everybody else automatically has the right to do. You're being excluded because of your religious beliefs. And, and this, this is the kind of thing that Christians have to remain vigilant, um, even as the Supreme Court rules in our favor. It, it's not tamping down. I mean, it's, it, the Supreme Court's decisions don't appear, at least yet, to be having much of a chilling effect when it comes to the state's willingness to exclude people because of their Christian faith. All right, let's look at another story that is, um, is, is also wrapped up in this idea about what Christians can or can't do. I've, I've talked about this before. Denise and I, my wife and I were having a conversation about this last night, and I began to tell her about this story about a Canadian father who was thrown in jail for misgendering his gender-confused teenage daughter. Well, uh, she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been following. Haven't you been following that? And as I began to think about it, we, when I was doing the radio show, um, I talked about this case. But this, this dad has scored an incredible victory in Canada in an appeals court case uh, because Canada's, way, Canada's idea of religious liberty is much different than the religious liberty ideas that we have here in the United States. And thankfully, our founders, our founding fathers, were wise enough to enshrine in the Bill of Rights uh, the idea of freedom of religion, the idea of freedom of our ability to worship and to live out our Christian values in the culture according to our conscience. Um, if it wasn't, I'm telling you, we would be closer to what Canada is than we are today because of what our Supreme Court is doing to protect religious liberty. But here's the story from Daily Wire. Canadian father who was thrown in jail after misgendering his gender-confused teenage daughter has scored a legal win in the British Columbia Court of Appeal. A judgment issued earlier this month said Robert Hoagland did not have to spend any more time behind, behind bars, and the court dropped an order for him to pay a, get this, are you ready for the fine amount for misgendering his daughter? $30,000 was going to be the fine, and he was sentenced to six months in jail. Now, this ostensibly was because he disobeyed a court order. He was held in contempt of court. That, but, but the reason he was held in contempt of court is because he gave an interview to the Federalist, um, and when as he was talking to them, he, missed, he called his daughter, he referred to his daughter, not to his son. And he started this battle way back, I think it was in 2019. He hasn't had any contact with his daughter since 2019. Um, 
no, 2018 is when this began. Uh, so, you, you know, for what, five years now, this has been going on. He's been in the middle of this fight over his daughter. His daughter was 13 years old. She was going to be injected with testosterone uh, despite his uh, uh, Hoagland refusing to give his consent. In Canada, they passed something called the Infants Act, and it permits minors to consent to their own trans treatments if doctors think it's in their best interest. Parents' consent is irrelevant. Now, that's how far they've gone in Canada in this. You, the, if a doctor determines that an, a minor should have some type of cross-gender treatment, some type puberty blockers, testosterone, which would be cross-gender treatments, if, it, and even as it relates to surgeries, I mean, the permission is granted if a doctor and a minor decides that this is the best interest of this particular child. And the father's wishes, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, disagreeing with the hospital, Hoagland said his daughter needed time and mental health support, not transgender medical interventions that can be irreversible. Testosterone and other trans interventions have been linked to fertility issues, lower bone density, and a host of other problems. Now, those studies, there, there are studies out there that indicate all of this. Of course, this is still being debated. I'm not making this as a definitive statement that these interventions always cause these problems, but there's in information out there to indicate that they do. The court said that the girl could move forward with the testosterone and said Hoagland was barred from publicly misgendering his daughter. Can you think about this, about this with me? Here's a dad who's got a 13-year. I'm trying to think how I would be when my daughters were 13, if a court came along and told me that I no longer had the right to refer to them as my daughters, that the law, we could get to a place in the world where a law could be passed that would prevent a father from referring to his daughter as a daughter. He couldn't refer to his own daughter by name or by gender. Moreover, Canadian media was banned from publishing Hoagland's name in any coverage via a publication ban. Hoagland told the Daily Wire that such bans allow people to hide what they're doing to children, despite these same people claiming trans treatments are helpful, good, and even life-saving. Despite the court conditions, Hoagland continued to speak out and was thrown in jail after he talked about the case and referred to his daughter as his daughter during an interview with the Federalist. For this, he was found in contempt of court, effectively committing what the Canadian court deemed family violence. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm going to let that hang there in the air for a minute. He was, con he was convicted of family violence for referring to his daughter as his daughter. The hardest part is knowing that one day you have a healthy child, and no matter how much you're fighting to protect that child of yours, who you love, and as a parent, is your responsibility to protect your child from these things, that you can simply, all you simply can do is watch the tragedy unfold, and your hands are tied. Now, the state has 30 days to, uh, excuse me, 90 days to decide whether to appeal. This, this, this thing may not be over. Um, the, the, excuse me, 60 days. I, I correct. Let me correct that. A 60-day period where this can get appealed to the Canadian Supreme Court so the legal battle could continue. And I, it's, it, it, 
my experience and and the, with these stories tells me that this is likely going to be appealed to the Canadian Supreme Court, and I'll be shocked if the Supreme Court doesn't overturn this decision and possibly send Hoagland back to jail. Um, we'll keep up on this for you because, I mean, this is, as a dad, somebody who's raised three children, two daughters and a son, um, and when I think about them and I think about my grandchildren and I think about what what this could mean for, I mean, obviously this is in Canada. Uh, it's not here in the United States. But that this could happen anywhere in the world where a parent, and, and we have cases like this in the United States where parents are being told that they can't misgender their children. We've got uh, a situation in California right now where there's a lawsuit because parents or a particular school system there in California has determined that they're going to withhold information about transgender if their son or daughter is going through a transgender process in the school. Uh, so this is not, I don't want you to think, well, this is happening in Canada. It doesn't have anything to do with us. I don't think you would do that. But we need to recognize that cases like this are going on in the United States and what happens in Canada does affect opinions of legal um, of people in the legal system here in the U.S. All right, um, we've got another story that this one is a victory, and you know, <laughs> well, this this case in Canada is a victory at least temporarily, but we have another victory here in the United States. But it has taken years for a farmer to be able to. Um, take his goods to the market. Now, I, I talked about this back on the radio show as well. Six years after a Michigan city banned a farmer from selling apples and other fruit at an outdoor market because he doesn't allow same-sex weddings on his property, a federal judge has ruled that the city violated his constitutional right to religious freedom. Really? I mean, you understand what we're talking about here. This is, by the way, this is at the Daily Signal as well. This is Ken McIntyre writing... Uh, for Daily Signal. It, think about this for a minute. Here, here's a man who has, he's, he has a farm. Uh, he's raising uh, crops. He he's, he's, takes his fruit to the farmer's market. And they find out that a same-sex couple wanted to come onto his property and get married. And he denied them that right. He said, no, my religious beliefs is not going to allow me to use my property to promote same-sex marriage. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that that's, that's biblical, and that's my, my Christian belief. And so he was told that he couldn't take his goods to market anymore. You know, you know what this makes me think about? I mean, this is not the mark of the beast. Let me be clear. Um, I don't want any confusion here that I, that I don't want anybody running around saying, oh, Tony Beam was talking about the mark of the beast is here. No, but I'm saying that here's a person who has a business and he was being told that he couldn't conduct his business, his livelihood. He couldn't go to the place where he buys and sells, particularly that he sells his goods. He was banned from doing that because he wouldn't allow his property to be used for a same-sex wedding. The original 2017 decision by East Lansing to exclude farmers Steve and Bridget Tennis 
and their country mill farms from the market constituted a burden on the plaintiffs' religious beliefs. District Judge Paul Maloney ruled last week, citing Supreme Court precedent. See, again, you think um, it doesn't matter who sits on the Supreme Court? I mean, I, I know you know that it matters, but who gets appointed to the Supreme Court is incredibly important because of how the Supreme Court decisions then ripple down into the rest of our of, of the country. Um, we can be very thankful for President Trump's Supreme Court appointments. I mean, he had three, and he hit a home run, or at least um, a triple, <laughs> on every one of them. I mean, uh, this court, particularly as it relates to religious liberty, um, and, and of course, on pro-life issues, uh, the court has been willing to look at the law rather than make law based on ideology, and that's made a tremendous difference when it comes to religious liberty. Um, he serves and welcomes everyone, talking about tennis, he serves and welcomes everyone to his stand at the farmer's market. No one has ever turned away, lawyer Don, John Bursich, a senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, said of tennis, and this is according to the Associated Press. The district court's decision rightly protects Steve's freedom to operate his business according to his convictions, said Kate Anderson, another senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, who argued before the court in July uh, on, on behalf of well, July 2021, on behalf of the tennises and their farm. Uh, Country Mill has continued to participate in the farmer's market without issue during the litigation. East Lansing first banned Country Mill Farms from its farmer's market in 2017 after the tennis is posted on Facebook in August 2016. Due to our religious beliefs, we do not participate in the celebration of same-sex unions. The post was in response to a question about the family farm services as a wedding venue. So that they've been allowing, they have a wedding venue at the farm, which is not unusual. A lot of a lot of people with a lot of um, acreage um, in a rural setting like this. I mean, it, it's a beautiful setting, and a, and a lot of people want to get married in a setting like that. So they come and they pay in order to get married in the, in on the farm. Um, the tennises have been doing this, but they made it clear that they weren't going to entertain same-sex weddings. Uh, it's their property. It's their religious beliefs. And they should be able to manage their lives according to biblical principles. And that's what this comes down to. I mean, what, what progressives would like to see is, at least for the time being, our religious beliefs sheltered in behind the walls of the church. In other words, if you can believe and say anything you want in the church, but once you br bring those beliefs out into the public square, then you, we're going to come after you if you don't agree with us. And, and this is all about the government, the government telling people how they have to believe when it comes to their, their, their belief in God. It's the government trying to say, if you don't agree with us, then we're going to come after you. And so far, the courts are ruling in favor of personal religious liberty, and we should praise God for that. Uh, the tennis told the Daily Signal in a 2017 interview that East Lansing's farmer's market is the largest market where they sell since June 1st, 2017. We've already missed three and a half months of being able to attend East Lansing's farmer's market where we've served everyone for the last seven years. Now, they were, as, as I said, they were, uh, with a court injunction, they were allowed to go back 
And while this case was being litigated, they missed a, 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 a big section of the, of the selling season, but eventually they were allowed to come back in and do business until this case was decided. And that's been six years. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, if you're, when you decide to step up and protect your religious liberty, then you're taking on, you're, you're looking at litigation that could take up a significant portion of your life. I mean, just, just look at Jack Phillips in Colorado. I mean, he's been in court for over 12 years now. I think it's going on 13 or 14 years. It was 12 years um, back when the Supreme Court ruled, and now he's still in court um, over the transgender issue. So if you're willing to take a stand, and I, I applaud these people. Um, I applaud Jack Phillips. Um, I, I, I've said this many times. I keep a picture of him decorating a cake on my desk to remind me that as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have a responsibility to stand up for my own religious liberty and the religious liberty of others. We can't just say, well, we don't want to be involved with court. We don't want to know. And, and every one of these cases, you, you've got the tennis family. They, they sell to anybody that comes to, to buy their products. They don't ask about whether they're uh, what their sexual orientation or sexual decisions are. They, they just simply serve their customers. That's what Jack Phillips did. That's what uh, Creative 303 did. They served their customers until, and, th and they didn't ask anything about their sexual preferences until their customers made their sexual preferences an issue and asked them to participate. Just not to accept the fact that we now live in a country that has all these things, but to approve of those who make those decisions. And if you're going to stick to your religious principles and religious liberty, that's something you can't do. So with, with, this is a win. This is another place where religious liberty is being protected. Uh, let's see. I think I had, I thought I had one more story here about that. Um, nope. I think that's the, I think that's, that was the third one. Um, cause we had the, the parents in Massachusetts, the father from Canada, and then this family, um, who've been, has been able to go back to the farmer's market. All right. Um, let's talk about the Supreme court cases that could have a big effect on the, what we could say the, is the administrative state. There are three cases during this session that the court is now in, well, when the court comes back in session in October. Uh, they'll begin to consider three cases that could rein in the administrative state. One of the most important principles of our Constitution is the separation of powers. I mean, we, we have endured as a nation because we, we have the executive branch, the judi judicial branch, and the legislative branch. The legislative branch makes the laws, they set the taxes, they do the things that affect the people the most. The judicial branch determines whether they are operating within the Constitution, and the executive branch is, is tasked with carrying out the laws and enforcing and making sure that the laws are, are in an equal way applied to everybody. So in the, what to get around this, there are government agencies now that are massive. I mean, you know this. They're, and and they, some of these agencies have their own system for determining 
the rightness and wrongness of their own policies. In other words, they, they, people can't go to an outside court to get a decision. When they've got an issue with an agency, they have to go to the internal process that that agency has, and 90% of the time, the agency rules in favor of itself. Duh. I mean, what, what, what would you expect if you're asking the agency to actually defend itself by having its own employees as the defenders. Well, one of the cases that could impact this is Looper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. Uh, Looper Bright addresses the source of, of the discretionary dilemma, and it's something known as the Chevron deference. Now, that's named for a 1984 decision that basically gave rise to the Chevron deference, and it requires courts to defer to any reasonable agency interpretation of the ambiguities or silences in a law in practice. So Chevron deference enables agencies to overstep their authority by treating vague language or doubtful gaps in a statute as authorization for actions that the agencies favor but that Congress never intended. So let me see if I can clear this up a little bit. You, let, let's say um, you, you have gov a government agency and you, the, there's a law, a statutory law that Congress has passed that regulates that agency, that tells that agency how they have to operate. Well, you can imagine, I mean, laws are hundreds of pages, multiple sections. And so in between these sections and in the language of the law, there are things that are often vague or not fully filled in by the, con by the Congress when they pass the law. Now, this is, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but this is another reason why we need transparency when it comes to laws that get passed, and we need to hold our legislators accountable when they pass laws without reading them. Because these, these places in the law allows these agencies set up by the federal government to make decisions that to basically operate outside of the reason that Congress put the agency together to begin with. And the, the Chevron deference is the decision that often the Supreme Court or other courts, not just the Supreme Court, but circuit courts, district courts, local courts, they look at that precedent and the law to say, well, we, when it comes to deciding whether an agency is following its own rules, <laughs> we have to defer to the agency to, turn, to determine. How many agencies do you think are going to raise their hand and say, excuse me, but we haven't been following our own rules? I mean, you, you can imagine how often that happens. So in the Looper Bright case, the National Marine Fisheries Service read one such doubtful gap into the Magnuson-Stevens Act and discovered a previously unknown power to require small fishing vessels to pay for their federally mandated at-sea monitors who enforce restrictions on methods and amounts of fishing. So the federal government says to, the, to these fishing um, boat operators, we have to have a federal monitor on there to make sure that you're adhering to all of the laws that we've passed in the, with the fishing industry. And that, that comes through the National Maritime Fisheries Service through the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And so th this is all of a sudden the, the uh, National Maritime Fisheries Service has determined um, these monitors that have to be on your, on your boats when you're going out to, to 
make a living and to provide a, a service to the people in this country, the, the, the monitors, you're going to have to pay for them. We believe, yeah, that's what the statute said. It doesn't say that. But according to the agency that has the responsibility to administer these laws, they've decided that it does say that. To avoid the crippling financial burden, the fishermen argue that the Chevron deference lets agencies steal the court's power to say what the law is and Congress power to write laws, leaving citizens subject to regulators' whims. Therefore, they contend that the court should overrule Chevron or drastically constrain its application. Now, when you consider the fact that the current Supreme Court, it's been several years since the current court has, re has referenced the Chevron deference, there's a lot of optimism that when this question actually comes before this court, that they're going to rule against the Chevron deference. They're going to either throw it out or they're going to greatly constrain it so that these government agencies can't just make up laws as they go along in the gaps that they find in the legislature, legislation that's passed by Congress to enable these agencies to operate. Uh, that could be huge. I mean, the administrative state in this country is out of control. There, this is something that the president can influence. I mean, and he's already influencing. He's issued these agency-wide declarations that everything has got to reflect uh, the, the country's main problem of climate change. In other words, now all these agencies are looking within the regulations to try to find ways to advance the climate change agenda. They're looking within their agencies to find a way to advance the LGBTQIA agenda. They're, and so when, when a president gets elected, someone like President Biden, who's very progressive, he can instruct these agencies and how they're supposed to interpret their own rules. But these are rules that have been set by Congress. And that the agency, these, when somebody disagrees, they ought to be able to go to court rather than going to a kangaroo court of the agency that the agency sets up it, to examine itself. And so this, this is an important Supreme Court case that could rein in the administrative state. The second case is Securities and Exchange Commission versus Jarsky. Uh, the Loper-Bright will have major implications for citizens fighting administrative agencies and courts, but it won't have much effect if a citizen can't get their case into court. Agencies prosecute many of their cases before tribunals within the agencies themselves, which is what we've been talking about. This, is, this story today, by the way, is coming from the Daily Signal. I want you to know where I'm, I'm obviously reading a good bit of this, and it's coming from a story that was written by... Uh, Giancarlo Canaparo uh, for Daily Signal. All right, uh, Jarsky may limit the use of in-house tribunals. The Securities and Exchange Commission suspected, suspected that George Jarsky Jr. and his investment advisor committed fraud, and it brought an enforcement action against them before one of its judges, one of the judges within the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're not talking about court here. We're talking about within the commission. The defendants argued that the in-house tribunal violates their Seventh Amendment right to have a jury trial. That right applies to suits at common law, of which fraud is one. So the defendants argue that the Constitution forbids the SEC from bringing their case to its in-house tribunal. Now, to me, 
that's pretty cut and dried. I know nothing is cut and dried in uh, the legal system anymore in the courtroom, but think about it. I mean, the Seventh Amendment does guarantee we, we have a right to have a jury uh, made up of our peers when it comes to cases like this, and fraud is one of those cases that is absolutely something that should come before a jury. They, you, you can't have just an administrative judge within an agency of the government make a decision when that judge is speaking for the agency. Who, wh what, what decision do they think he's going to render? You have to have an impartial judge and jury make decisions, particularly about things like fraud. So this would force, in, in the first case, you're, you're going you're, you're gonna to force agencies uh, to not lean so heavily on their in-house decisions or to be able to interpret laws passed by Congress in a way that's advantageous to them, whether it makes sense in the text of the law or not. In this case, it's going to give people the right to have a jury trial or to go outside the agency to settle these questions. And that would be huge. That would be a big step at reining in the administrative state. And finally, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus Community Financial Services Association of America. Now, Congress created an unusual funding mechanism for the CFPB. Uh, and, and the CFPB is the Community Financial Services Association, or rather the Community Financial Protection Bureau. That this was this was created. I think this law was passed back in 2010. So, what's the unusual funding mechanism? Well, get this: the CFPB gets to take as much money as it wants, subject to a cap, directly from the Federal Reserve. So, when the CFPB needs money, it just draws it out of the Federal Reserve. No authorization from Congress. This is an agency that funds itself with taxpayer money without Congress giving its approval. Now, the, 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 the government is arguing that because Congress set up this agency and set up this process, that it has congressional approval. But this flies in the face of Congress having to be the one that decides where the, that, how, how this agency operates and how much the agency can find or how much money is used to pay for the agency. I mean, this is if, if an agency can just it's like having a money tree. It's this this group, this agency, the CFPB, they they've just got a they can go out and shake the money tree. You know how you how many times have you told your children, look, money doesn't grow on trees. Where for some government agencies, it grows at the Federal Reserve tree and they just have to go shake it to get the money that they want. So if if this law if this they win this lawsuit, they're basically saying that it is unconstitutional for an agency created by Congress to be funded without Congress passing the amount of funding, a specific amount, being in charge of what the agency is able to spend. So these three cases remind us on how excessive judicial deference coupled with congressional laziness, has created our all-powerful administrative state. And we, we know this is, this is one of our, 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 our most serious problems that a lot of people don't pay much attention to, um, is how far the administrative state can go in making its own laws, and that, uh, that um, deference has been given to them by Congress. 
Loper Bright gives the court the opportunity to fix its mistake, and the other two cases give it an opportunity to wake Congress up with the only thing that might do the trick, a judicial slap in the face. Uh, again, this is coming today from the Daily Signal. So these are important cases. All right, uh, just real quick uh, to wrap up, because I talked about these um, Biden pseudonyms, and I said that we were going to talk a little bit about it. The New York Post has a story. They're the ones that have been on top of this. They're calling for over 5,000 pseudonym emails to be released immediately. Now, th this is the National Archives, by the way, and I'm going to switch over here to a story from National Review by Caroline Downey. Uh, the National Archives and Records Administration has confirmed that it is in possession of nearly 5,400 emails, electronic records, and documents containing pseudonyms that President Biden used as vice president. Now, this is government business. This is government business that took place on a government computer, and the president, that, who was now, he's now president, then he was vice president, was communicating under names that allowed him to remain anonymous. The pseudonym emails contained the names Robert Ware, Robert L. Peters, and J.R.B. Ware, uh, pseudonyms that Biden used while serving the Obama administration, according to House Republicans investigating Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings. On Monday, the legal organization sued um, in order the National Archives to obtain the records, which it alleges could reveal that Biden shared confidential government knowledge with his son. Now, that's the only way we're ever going to know. We're, we're not going to know what's in these emails until they have to be released. Now, so far, they've released, I think, one uh, through the Freedom of Information Act. They were able to get an email under one of these pseudonyms that revealed to Hunter Biden the president's schedule. Now, that's innocuous. But there are, according to the archives, 54, approximately 5,400, over 5,000 of these emails and electronic communications. What do they say? Three pseudonyms. Um, we can't operate. The government of the United States has to be transparent to the people because we, the people, get to decide who goes and runs the government. We, we can't have people running around with false names, using, especially someone like the vice president, using pseudonyms to communicate. For what purpose? Well, Republicans say on the uh, oversight committee that they believe all of this is linked to the um, the keeping the the fact that the Bidens had these overseas deals going and that there was bribery involved between Joe Biden when he was vice president and Hunter Biden, his son. Now, have they proved that yet? No. But as the information continues to come out, it looks more and more like this is a provable case. And that's why a lot of people are saying that we've got to have um, an impeachment of Joe Biden, because then that's going to allow the, uh, the subpoena powers to be increased. And look, I get that. I talked about that yesterday. I'm going to go back and cover that ground again. Um, I'm just, I'm very concerned about impeachment powers, uh, about impeachment, because every time we do this, basically we're saying that the next president's going to be impeached and the next one, I mean, there's just not going to be any end to it. 
All right, that's all the time we've got for today. I hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me again in the morning at 7.30 for more Truth and Politics and Culture with me, Dr. Tony Beam. Don't forget to take a look at the podcast, or at least give it a listen. You can also leave me a good review when you decide to follow. I hope you'll do that. God bless you. Have a great day.